to tell you a story, introduce a 51-year-old Jonathan Bauer. Works for a hospital out, he's a technology executive, out in Maryland. He's driving home one afternoon with his 13-year-old daughter, Ava. And it is a spring day. I mean, it is just beautiful outside, and Maryland has that gray dreary winter and so they've got their windows down because it is springtime and they're just they are just letting the air flow through the car they're headed across the the nearly mile and a half it's about a mile point four mile and a half uh two lane route 90 bridge which spans the very shallow waters of the Woman bay so they're headed across this nearly mile and a half bridge. It's, it's shallow down there, sometimes four, five feet deep, but, but it bridges it, this bridge. And they are, they are just having the time of their life when the calm is disturbed by the squeal of tires. Not far ahead of them, a black pickup was skidding from one lane to the other to Bower's whore. It slammed into a concrete barrier, spun like a top, flipped over the SUV directly ahead of them, and came to rest dangling over the railing of the bridge. Bower hit the brakes in time to avoid the vehicles in his path, but the BMW sedan that was smashed into the guardrail on the right side came sliding backward toward him. He swerved left, but too late. The BMW stuck, struck his Volvo's fender before crashing into the vehicle behind him. Bower finally came to a stop all the squealing and crashing, now quiet. He looks over at Ava and says, are you okay? Oh yeah, Dad, I'm, I'm fine. And then he heard a shriek from the pickup, which had come to rest on its right side. The rear passenger compartment and truck bed hung out past the guardrail about 30 feet above the bay. So Jonathan jumps out and runs first first checking on the BMW driver fine i'm i'm fine bauer ran over to the truck the man pointed down saying something in spanish bauer ran over and looked over the edge bobbing in the water was a car seat next to it a very small girl, less than two years of age. Pink polka dotted dress, brown hair, brown eyes, but terrified as she is floating on her back, looking up. She begins to splash and scream, and to their horror, in her splashing and screaming, she now turns over. Went from bad to worse. Bauer yells to his 13-year-old daughter, still sitting in their car, Ava, you stay put. Looks at the man again who is just frozen in shock. <sighs> Come on, dads, picture the moment. 30 feet up. Oh, Bauer takes his shoes off. And that's all the time he wastes before, in his own words, doing the the least painful belly flop he could pull off. The water is only four or five feet deep. He knows that because his boat has gotten stuck down there before. So he knows he doesn't have a lot of give, and he's got to hit as much surface water as possible to slow his plunge from 30 feet. Belly flopped 
the entire thing just as he'd hoped. He bounces off the sandy bottom. Stands up. He's about 10 feet away from the little baby. Makes his heroic move. Grabs her. Pulls her out of the water. Throws her over his shoulder. And beats her back. Until he hears the life-saving sounds. As she vomits up the water. In just a few short moments, there's a, pont a family on a pontoon boat that circle up next to him. He loads her up. They take over to the dock where, where a helicopter is landing. This little girl is rushed away. Rushed away to the hospital. What was that conversation? Or was there any conversation in heaven when, when Jesus looked into the eyes of his father as the consideration was made. What if man succumbs to now the attacks levied by the angel we have created in his perfection? He has now began to attack and accuse us. What if he takes that kind of rebellion to the planet Earth? What are we going to do? And I can't imagine in my mind that the father waited any longer than Jonathan Bauer to say, we've, we've got to take the dive. We've got to jump. And Jesus, right there, said, absolutely, I am in. I am in. If one of them ever falls, if just one of them, I'll do it. I'll take the dive. If a father's heart was willing to jump from a bridge to a little girl who was not his own. Certainly the heavenly father would jump from heaven to earth. Grab your Bibles. We're going to not the Christmas story as in the beginning of the Gospels, but the very end of the Gospels, John chapter 18. Jesus is now standing before the Roman governor Pilate and he begins to tell him the Christmas story. You are a king then? said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born. And Jesus begins the Christmas story standing before judgment in Pilate's hall. You want to know? You want to know about my kingship? Said Jesus, I, I'm the babe of Bethlehem. I came. I came. This reason I was born. In the New King James, if you're reading from that version, this is the NIV. If you're reading from the New King James, it will read, for this cause, this purpose, this was the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. This is the reason that Bethlehem happened, that I was born a babe to a poor set of parents. Well, you have to understand Pilate's confusion because Pilate is dealing with someone who is willingly, it seems, willingly to go to a cross. And Pilate had seen a thousand crosses, but never one with a willing candidate. No, why? Because the cross was more than a, 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 
a death sentence. In fact, it wasn't at all. It wasn't meant to be a death sentence. It was meant to torture, humiliate, and to represent the item that was on it. The person that was on it was not even considered uh, a human. They were considered at that point rubbish. It did everything to humiliate them. And so here, Pilate's a little confused, as you can imagine. Why, Why aren't you trying to defend yourself? Don't you know what's coming next? Don't you hear what they're crying? Crucify? Are you really a king? And then Jesus says, I'll tell you this. I'll tell you the Christmas story. Because in that is the beautiful truth of why I've come. Why I'm standing before you, Pilate. I came to bear witness of the truth. And to that, it was too much for Pilate. Verse 30, he says, what What is truth? Come on, man. I can't figure out what truth is here. I don't know if you're guilty or innocent. And every last person that is headed to the cross will tell me that they are innocent. What is truth? Retorted Pilate. And with that, he went off. Pilate was incredulous. Maybe even skeptical. Something couldn't be so beautiful. Somebody couldn't be willing to be so humiliated for any cause. There's nothing worth such humiliation and torture. But Jesus says, that's the reason I came. From Bethlehem, from Christmas to Calvary, Jesus was here for the truth. American analytic philosopher Alvin Plantinga. Oh, he writes, if you examine this question of of Jesus dying on the cross, he created these humans and and then he became flesh and dwelt among us. He treated them as no oriental monarch would ever, which was why Pilate's retort, you're a king? That's not how kings act around my part of the world. Jesus begins to demonstrate a different kind of lordship. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And Alvin Plantinga says, this overwhelming display that this king of the universe would be willing to stretch out his arms and die in the most humiliating, the most cruel, the most embarrassing of tortures. This overwhelming display of love and mercy is not merely the greatest story ever told. It is the greatest story that could be told. If in your wildest imagination you were to create the Christmas story again, you couldn't tell it in any more beautiful way. And it's no wonder, it's no wonder that outside Bethlehem, now we're going to Luke. This is, this is my favorite of the Christmas stories. Luke chapter 2. This is why outside of Bethlehem, well, Joseph and Mary dealt with their own questions. The angels exploded upon the hillside. The angels said to them, do not be afraid. Who the shepherds? Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be for all people. Remember the nations, languages, and peoples? This will be for all people. For there is born to you in this day in the city of David, 
a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You want to know how you'll be able to recognize him? You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And this, this angel, just out of sight, is all of these angels that are just so eager to get on with this redemption story. They're hanging in the, in the, behind the veil, but they can't take it any longer. When this is announced, you will recognize him. He's there, I promise you. And then on cue, the angel choir explodes, and suddenly there was with an angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. On earth, the entire planet, every nation, language, and people, and goodwill toward men. Charles Wesley took Luke chapter 2 and wrote an incredible hymn, which we will sing at the conclusion of the service. He wrote this hymn based on these words, but he took, he took this quote, goodwill towards men, and he translated it. He was a year into his conversion when he began to write this song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Glory to the Newborn King, Peace on Earth and Mercy Mile. And then when he gets to the part, this is the quote that should say, and goodwill toward men. He says, no, 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 no. This is God and man reconciled. That's what it means. That's the truth of the Christmas story. God and men would be reconciled. Joyful then, all you nations. Sing it in every language. Sing it in Swahili. Sing it in German. Sing it in French. Sing it in Portuguese and Spanish and English. Sing it. God and men are now reconciled. Join the triumph of the sky. Hey, the angel said, we're already singing. When you start singing, just know that you are just joining a host of heavenly worship. You're not on your own. You say, I sing, I sing alone. No, 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 you never do. You never do because the heavenly choir is always singing because they know, they know that God and man are now reconciled. With the angelic host proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Hark the herald angels sing. I just want to read you and just meditate. Close your eyes. Think through this. Pray through this. Read these words that Wesley wrote. Reflection of this moment. Hark the herald angels sing. Hail the son of righteousness. Light and life to all he brings. Risen with healing in his wings, mild. That's an old English word for just gentle. Gentle, gently he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them a second birth. Hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. Hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners are reconciled. Joyful all you nations rise. Join the triumph of the skies. With that angelic host proclaim. Christ is born in Bethlehem. I want to read for you. Keep reading from Wesley's works. But stanzas, the final four stanzas of his poetic work that 
aren't typically ever included in any hymnal. Come, desire of nations, come. Fix in us thy humble home. Rise, the woman's conquering seed. He's speaking of the prophecy now. Bruise in us the serpent's head. Oh, do that work in us, we pray. Now display, keep reading, thy saving power. Ruined nature, now restore. Now in mystic union joined, thine to ours and ours to thine. Adam's likeness, Lord, a face. Stamp thine image in its place. Second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. Let us thee the lost regain thee, the life, the inner man. Oh, to all thyself in part, formed in each believing heart. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Wesley wrote those words a year, not even a year after his conversion. As he tried to unpack Luke chapter 2 and what the angels knew and what they recognized and what they were celebrating as they broke open the sky just outside of Bethlehem. What do these stanzas proclaim? These stanzas proclaim that God will save this planet, that he will have a people in which he puts his image, that his reflection will be reflected in a people on this planet. That's the truth of Christmas. From Christmas to Calvary, Jesus lived a life of truth that he said would be reflected in all the world. John the Revelator. John the Revelator was convinced that he heard the same angels that the shepherds heard. He said, I've heard them too. I've heard them. And in, John, in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9, I'll put it on the screen for you. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9. And they sang a new song. This is around the throne now. They sang a new song saying, you are worthy. You are worthy, O Lord, to take the scroll and to open its seats, seals because you were slain because of the Christmas story. I was birthed into this world for the cause of dying for it, said Jesus, because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. And I like to remind people that when John wrote this, he wrote this with a, with a quill. He didn't have just this ballpoint pen or a computer that he could use as many words as he wanted. When he wrote this, every word mattered because he is dipping. And maybe he has a limited supply of ink. And so he is using every word purposefully. And when it comes to this, he doesn't just say all the earth, everywhere, all people. He wants it to be so incredibly clear that what heaven is worshiping is the redemption of this entire planet, every tribe. And then he writes language. And then he says people and nation. He wants us to know that this story of Jesus, according to heaven, is going around the world. Navajo Nation and your street. And if God can save the world 
that God can save in every nation, in every language, and in every people. He can save you. In the 1970s, there were some lines that became popular or shared. Most, most cite these as anonymous lines, but it's entitled The Great, or the, rather The Long Silence. Maybe you've read them before. At the end, billions of people were scattered on a great plain before God's throne. Most shrank back from the brilliant light before them, but some groups near the front talked heatedly, not with a cringing shame, but, but with belligerence. Can God judge us? How can he know about suffering snapped a brunette? She wrote, ripped open a sleeve to reveal a tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp. We endured horror, beatings, and tortures, and death. In another group, a black man lowered his collar. What about this, he demanded, showing an ugly rope burn, lynched for no crime. In another crowd was a pregnant schoolgirl with swollen eyes. Why should I suffer? She murmured. It wasn't my fault. Far out across the plain, there were hundreds of such groups. Each had a complaint against God for the evil and suffering that he permitted in this world. How lucky God was to live in heaven. Of course, you can live in heaven where all is sweetness and light. Where there's no weeping or fear or hunger or hatred. What did God know of all that man has been forced to endure? What does God know about my suffering? For God leads a pretty sheltered life, everyone seemed to agree. So each of these groups sent forth their leader chosen because he had suffered or she had suffered the most. A Jew, a black, a person from Hiroshima, a horribly deformed, arthritic, cancer-stricken child. In the center of the plane, they consulted with each other, and at last, they were ready to present their case. It was rather clever. Before God could be qualified to be their judge, he must endure what they had endured. Their decision was that God should be sentenced to live on earth as a man. Let him be born. A Jew. Let, his let, the let, let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted. Give him a work so difficult that even his family will think him out of his mind when he tries to do it. Let him be betrayed by his closest friend. Let him face false charges. Let him be tried before a prejudiced jury and convicted of a, by a cowardly judge. Let him be tortured. And at last... Let him see what it means to be terribly alone. Let him die alone. So there, and then let it be that he dies in such a way that there can be no doubt that he died. And let there be a great host of witnesses to verify it. As each letter pronounced his and her portion of the sentence, loud murmurs of approval went out from the throng of people assembled. And when the last word had finished, there was a long silence. No one uttered another word. No one moved. For suddenly, suddenly it became clear. And all knew that God had already served his sentence. This is the truth. Jesus said as he stood before Pilate, a coward 
who wouldn't stand up to the people, prejudiced, betrayed by his own friend. And all the world knew that Jesus had in fact suffered already and he deserved the right. As John says, you are worthy, O Lord, because you were slain and with your blood you purchased us. What could we ask for? In your heart and in my heart, we know this Jesus did. He did it all so that he could buy us back, so that he could fix the hell that we are a part of. Around the world, flags represent us. Right now, I've got to point out that there is a worldwide gathering of representatives. They gather together on a field known as the World Cup. You will note that in the World Cup, the flags represented there, there is no all-white flag. There has been in history, but not now. I've got to tell you, then, all of these nations come together representing their own tribe, their own language, their own nation. Put a, put a picture on the screen for you of Mr. Valencia. He's the captain of the, of the national team for Ecuador. He's got 38 goals. He's an all-time top scorer, holds the record for the most goals scored in the World Cup for Ecuador. Now, they've, they've lost and moved on. Ecuador has. But Mr. Valencia committed to his home region that any income that he got for playing in the World Cup would be sent to them to help deliver them from the tragedy that they are experiencing. He comes from a corner of Ecuador up against Colombia called Esmeralda. And in the country of Ecuador, they refer to it as the forgotten place. One of the 10 deadliest places on this planet. North Ecuador, Esmeralda. And that's where Valencia was was birthed and raised. He came from one of the deadliest, most violent corners of the world. And now he says, I am going to use any income I get from playing on a world stage to help rescue the people, the children that are experiencing violence in the forgotten corner of Ecuador. You know, in the universe, in the universe, In the universe, earth is the deadliest. And Satan and a third of the angels refer to it as the forgotten place. Might as well forget about it. Universe, 
Come on, go on. You guys are just fine without these folks. Look, look, in fact, how they treat you, how they ignore you, how they're indifferent to you. This is the Esmeralda. This is the forgotten place. And then the one that was birthed and raised here says, I remember it. Jesus, I came from there. Those are my brothers and sisters. And I will, I will expend every ounce of resource that I have on this universal stage. I will spend it. I will spend it for the forgotten corner of the universe to rescue and redeem my people. Hallelujah. Well, Valencia isn't the first one that came up with this. It was Jesus who said, I was birthed and raised in the deadliest corner of the universe, and I will expend all of heaven's resources to save the people that are there. And he's standing before Pilate. And he says, Pilate, let me tell you the Christmas story. And Pilate, a governor, says, I have never seen somebody act like this. We don't do that on this planet. And Jesus says, no kidding. That's the kingdoms from a different part of the universe. That's who I represent. I'm not coming to, to, to take you off of your seat and set up my own seat. I am fixing every nation, language, tongue, and people. We're all in this together. And I will spend my life. Take me, Pilate. I'll spend my life to buy these people back. The forgotten place of the universe. Jesus says, I've been there. I've been there. I've done that. And I died there. And I'm going to buy it back. That's the Christmas story. And so while, while we wave flags, it's the one I picked for the prayer, while we wave flags that are red and yellow and black and blue and green, the Christian, the individual Christian of every nation and language and people, needs to wave the white flag. What does white represent? It represents truth. It represents purity and innocence. And it represents humility. And it represents perfection. And if you take white and you stick it on a pole, it represents surrender. And Pilate, or Jesus said to Pilate, I'm going to bear witness of the truth. Would you stick me on a pole? I'm going to be the epitome, the representation of surrender. And so they took Jesus, truth. He is the word, says John. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus said, I am the truth. And now, Pilate, let them put 
me on a pole because when I'm lifted up, I, through my surrender and my representation, I will draw all men and women of every nation, language, tribe, and people. I will draw them to myself. I'll buy them back, Pilate. That's the truth. And Pilate couldn't handle it because that's not how we operate on this planet, not at least as of late. But I wonder, I wonder if this Christmas, people of every nation, language, tribe, and people would be willing to embrace the truth stuck on a pole. Jesus in surrender. What does it mean when you wave a white flag? It means you are giving up and there's something in your life, something Maybe it's a mentality, maybe it's an addiction, maybe it's a pain, maybe it's a memory, maybe it's something, something that you are struggling with today. And you say, Jesus, I, I want to surrender this. And in surrendering this, it's a two-way message. I am giving it to you, and I am getting you. I am giving this up, but I am taking you in. I am taking the truth that was lifted up on a pole. And so while we all wave flags from every corner of this globe, it's fine. But the Christian, the one surrendered to Jesus, waves a different flag. And so I'm going to invite our worship team up to lead us in that Wesleyan hymn. Those words penned by Charles Wesley. Hark the herald angels sing. What were they singing? They were singing glory to the newborn king. Why? Why does it matter? Because God and man will be reconciled. That's the truth of Christmas. And if you, this Christmas, want to make the decision for whatever addiction, whatever pain, whatever mentality, whatever you struggle with, whatever you are holding, if you want to surrender, if you want to wave the flag of surrender, giving it up and accepting Jesus in, I would invite you one more time to the front. We've replaced those colored flags with white flags. In the balcony, the same spot there, center balcony, you have a block of white flags. The offering will be collected at the exits. If you have a connect card you want to share, you put it in at the exits. But during this closing hymn, I'm going to invite you to stand with me and then to come to the front and take a flag. If that's your decision, you can take the flag home and you can write on it with a marker what you are surrendering to Jesus. It's you and him. This is the decision. Are you going to give up the flag you have waved and pick the white flag? I would invite you to stand with us as we sing, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And then as you are willing, come, come get a white flag.
a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us and the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Jesus Christ is our Prince of Peace, our Mighty Healer, our Redeemer and our Savior. Amen.